Here we go. Welcome to The Radical Bureaucrat, a podcast for people who want to change institutions from the inside. Today is Monday, April 20th. Here in New York City, there are signs of improvement, even as we stay right in the smack dab middle of this pandemic. Yeah. And to, to give everybody a sense of where we are, I'd like to share this Facebook post from my good friend, Catherine O'Connor Ma who's a pediatrician at Montefiore Hospital in the Bronx. Um, Catherine was called on to assist um, with the adult COVID service uh, three weeks ago when things got really bad. So I'm gonna read to you all from the, the posts that she put up this weekend. Tonight, I returned home from my third week on the adult COVID service in our children's hospital. Week one, we tried our best to learn everything we could to help these much bigger people filling our colorful rooms with their pain and angst, right? Because these were adults in the children's hospital, so they're bigger people. Week two, we became a little more independent, getting into a bizarre COVID routine for the many who we successfully and joyfully helped recover and fighting like mad for those who were worsening, trying everything we could and then holding tight to the hands of those we couldn't help as they worsened. And suddenly, confusingly, in week three, the patients stopped coming. We still have some sick patients, but many are getting better and will go home soon. And we are perplexed. People are protesting in this country that this virus was overblown in a conspiracy. And I want to shake them and cry out and ask how many more mothers and brothers and sons did we need to lose to make you realize what a miracle it is that we halted the acute rise in disease? I was a doubter. I wasn't scared and I was thrown into the fire and I lived to bear witness. If you think this is anything but our once in a lifetime moment to choose humanity over economy, you are making a mistake from which our country can never recover. Mm. And she goes on a little bit and, and, and again, cautions as we all should that we can very easily backslide. Uh, things are bad right now. They're not as bad as they were a week ago, but they're very bad and it can get much worse. Um, but that's where we are. You know, yeah. we, we're on the other side of our first hump. Uh, and that's from someone who's directly seeing all of this on the front lines. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so uh, sobering um, to think about, you know, <laughs> To the way that we've kind of normalized the, the good news on, on the governor's press conference was uh, it's only 500 deaths last mm-hmm. night or yesterday, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's still 500 people. That's still 500 people. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's every it, it's every day. Um, you know, we're going to talk about about that a little bit more uh, in a little while. But yeah, this idea that we should 
reboot the economy. Like I, I, I get it. I, I went to business school. I understand how business works, how the economy works. I mean, at least as much as one with my years of experience can understand such things. And, um, it's scary. Cash flow is the lifeblood, the oxygen of businesses. And when the mm -hmm. cash shuts down, it is terrifying. You have to suddenly tell all these people who are counting on you to go home and you don't know when things are going to get better. Um, it is very difficult. And so I understand where people are coming from. Also, historically, as Americans, we are terrible, terrible at taking care of ourselves at healthcare. And so I really don't want to see what happens if we, if we slide back into something because we try to get the economy moving. Mm -hmm. Maybe actually we should be consuming less. Maybe it's okay that we're cooking at home more, that restaurants are closed. Yeah. Maybe, you know, listen, I, I like the benefits of economic development. I like that there are nice restaurants in the city that I live in, but I'll take people not dying. Um, you know, I'll, I'll take a break from that. Um, yeah, for sure. And I mean, <laughs> yes, and we do need to prioritize health. But I do want to say as two bureaucrats in the Department of Education facing massive cuts, it's not just yeah. the business sector, right? It's 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 going to impact schools. Right. It's impacting all of us. And the faster we can get the economy going, the more it's going to benefit it's true. Um, yeah. the most needy. In, and, and not just those who work in, right. in, pri in the private sector. Yeah, what this uh, has revealed is that we don't know how to get resources. To, people are really chained to their minimum wage job and they're in trouble if we don't get them cash soon, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So look, today we want to back up um, and we're going to have a conversation between just the two of us. Just the two of us. <laughs> uh, we've been recording episodes consistently since the schools closed here on March 16th. And we're going to go over some of the highlights of this season and preview some of what we're going to talk about in the future. So let's get into it. Uh, Abram, what's one highlight for you of our season so far? Well, I'm so glad you asked, Sam. Thank you for asking. That's a great <laughs> hey, question. you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, you know, it's tough to choose. I really enjoy every conversation. That's why I do it. Um, but I, I think the conversation with Dan Honig from... Um, mm -hmm. Uh, Carnegie Mellon, right? Uh, was where mm -hmm. Dan, Dan Honig is. Um, I think it's Johns Hopkins. Oh, Johns Hopkins, excuse me. Um, sorry, hopefully nobody's angry at me now. Um, yeah, yeah I, I think his, his comments about this idea of the only real way we've found for assigning talent to work is money. Um, mm -hmm. And it's kind of a recurring theme in all of my conversations, how we identify and nurture talent. Um, especially given biases and how biases have shaped that selection uh, process in the past in our society. And so, you know, it really resonated with me. Um, you know, he, you know, ob obviously his story about it being exfiltrated by the State Department from Senegal mm -hmm. was exciting. Um, but, but I thought that his uh, comments about how like policies and institutions fail because they're using money as the means of valuing human contribution. Um, mm. And that's just a bad, that's just a bad idea. Yeah, I have a, I have a study group. Uh, hopefully, uh, all of you out there are in some kinds of book clubs online or something, because mm -hmm. this is the time to like do some study group. I think um, I've got a study group about pedagogy of the oppressed, the the seminal mm. Paulo Freire work um, out of the Brazilian movement. 
um, and uh, this idea of objectification and how we turn people into objects and how the opposite of that is humanization. And we have the choice mm -hmm. to be more human to people or to turn them into an object, into an amount of, of money, basically. Um, and how that really permeates our institutions. Every institution, it permeates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you should... Uh... You should read Becky's book, Becky Tarla, who yeah. we also interviewed uh, in conjunction with the Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Yeah, yeah, I can't MSC, wait to introduce my friends to, to that book, too. Yeah, the, the, the movement out there uh, mm -hmm. is all based on Fairian mm -hmm. um, theory. So um, what my highlight is uh, I would really encourage listeners to check out episode five of this season with Tassica Lloyd. Uh, Tassica's message on collectivism really inspired me so much so that the, the weekend after we spoke to her, I reached out to my neighbors, to the parents on the Little League team that I coached, um, and to some friends uh, that right after uh, we recorded with her. Um, and she had this basis of comparison. So she's West Indian, and mm -hmm. in her country, she says, People know how to look out for each other during a hurricane mm -hmm. because there's an inherent sense that we are all dependent on each other. Mm -hmm. So we're, I'm going to look out for you because I know right. you're looking out for me. Yep. And if we it's don't powerful. do that, we're going to be in trouble. But in an individualistic society like our own, we lack that instinct. We don't ask our neighbors okay. And so she had some very practical suggestions for what that looks like and just a, a helpful way of framing some of the differences between a, a society that leans collectivist versus one that leans individualistic. Overall, I just felt like her vision, her compassion, and her passion uh, make her someone we should all be listening to now and in the future. So a few highlights for you all, just to, if, if, you, if you're catching up, um, things to look out for. But let's talk about what's coming next. So one of the things that you and I have been talking about on the podcast and off the podcast is the amount of loss that all of us have faced, whether yeah. it's in actual human life or everyday pleasures. And not only have we faced this loss that has already happened, we are also dealing with something called anticipatory grief, mm -hmm. which is that feeling we get about what the future holds when we're uncertain. How much longer is this going to, are we going to keep losing things? Uh, how much more loss is coming? Mm -hmm. so, so there's all of this loss and it all uh, causes us to be in this perpetual state of grief, whether we know it or not. So Abram, you were the one who originally suggested that we dive in on, on this notion of grief. Uh, what prompted you to suggest that? Yeah, um, another great question. Thanks for asking. <laughs> um, yeah, I just know that I just know that we're not very good at it. Um, you know, and this is the kind of thing where we're gonna have to. I I think you know maybe there'll be some episodes specifically that go in on it, but I think this is across. Um, there the will medium, be episodes. The medium term, um, we don't know how to handle grief and loss. Yeah. We know how to keep it moving, right? Mm -hmm. Keep things moving, uh, keep our head down, work hard, keep our head up, not let things get to us, let things slide off. We have a lot of ways of communicating and 
uh, I guess really it's communicating to our children. It's a lot of things we learn as kids to kind of like mm-hmm. shake it off, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even Taylor Swift wrote a song about it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and we don't pause and let ourselves feel that, that this is loss and it hurts. It hurts to lose. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a good, you know, uh, pretty early, I think it was like week one or two or something like that. This article came out in the Harvard Business Review, which we, you know, I love coming back to the Harvest B- Business Review, Harvard <laughs> Business Review. It's a pattern with us, isn't yeah. it? Um, the, this article that discomfort you're feeling is grief and, it, and it's this interview um, with David Kessler um, who wrote uh, a book, who wrote on grief and grieving, finding the meaning of grief through the five stages of loss. And so, you know, you hear this a lot on TV shows or whatever. There's this this uh, stages of grief, right? I think this is like a psychology 101 uh, kind of like framework that people, you know, that sticks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just read the quote because I think he summarizes it super well. And I have to give all credit to Sam because he pointed me to this as a really good summary. Um Uh, Dr. Kessler says, whenever I talk about the stages of grief, I have to remind people that the stages aren't linear and may not happen in this order. It's not a map, but it provides some scaffolding for this unknown world. There's denial, which we know, which we say a lot early on, the virus won't affect us. There's anger. You're making me stay home and taking away my activities. There's bargaining. Okay, if I social distance for two weeks, everything will be better, right? There's sadness. I don't know when this will end. And finally, there's acceptance. This is happening. I have to figure out how to proceed. Acceptance, as you might imagine, is where the power lies. We find control in acceptance. I can wash my hands. I can keep a safe distance. I can learn how to work virtually. Um, I think it's, it's, uh, I agree. You know, too often we, you know, in the movies, it's always like, you know, you go quickly through these stages or something. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that's where the arc of the story is. But in real life, you end up stuck in a circuit. You end up coming back mm-hmm. to those feelings of sadness. You end up coming back mm-hmm. to those feelings of bargaining. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, and I don't, not to put you on the spot or anything, but, you know, w- what do you think, Sam? Have you seen this show up in terms of coronavirus? Uh, and its impact on those around you and your own life and kind of where have you seen making space or where have you made space for that kind of grief? Yeah. Um, I, 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 there are two things that I think about. One is we're all doing these video teleconferences all the time and uh, we're checking in with each other. And I think that part of the reason why we want to talk about this is because this is a podcast about the workplace. And so I want us to ask, how, are we really creating space for grieving at work? Because we need to create space for wherever we have relationships and we can't be scared off by it. And part of mm. what this podcast is about is throwing out old norms of uh, how we're to relate to each other. I mean, the, the really, I think the, the most popular episode, I, I know the most popular episode mm-hmm. we've ever done was on love mm-hmm. in the first season. And we read all about love by Bell Hooks and asked the question, how do we show love in the workplace? And I mm-hmm. feel like now the question is, how do we create space for grieving in yeah. the workplace? We have to do that in order to... Um, take care of ourselves. This is one of those situations where, you know, we people always go to the metaphor of the, the plane is going down, the oxygen is depleted, the face masks come down and they tell you to put it on yourself. 
on your face first so that yeah. you can then take care of the child next to you. And we all need to take care of ourselves uh, while we're taking care of others and, and sometimes take care of ourselves first. So I really want to explore that. But for me personally, I wanted to just, there's one example of grief that's really showing up in my life, which is I'm a little embarrassed to talk about it because um, it's one of those little things. Yeah, and, I hear you, Sam. I, yeah. And, and I, I feel that. I feel that yeah. like I'm embarrassed that I feel this loss. Yeah. Yeah, right. Because, uh, you know, I have an anticipatory grief about losing family members, but I haven't lost any family members yet. And in fact, I, the, I, I know a lot of people who have people who have died, but nobody in my inner circle has died. And, uh, and so for me, the thing that I'm really mourning right now is the baseball season hmm. and not the major league baseball season, which is right. nice. I would love to be watching games right now, but that's sure. not the big thing. It's the little league season because both of my sons play little league mm -hmm. and in Harlem, Harlem little league is a great community. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I mourn the loss of that community. I mourn the fact that you only have a few years to play little league baseball and my mm. sons are going to miss these, this season. Uh, it looks like they'll probably miss the whole thing. Um, I, and not only my sons, but uh, all the other kids in that community, they'll miss all the things that come from playing little league, like the friendships, the, um, the self-confidence. I mean, I had, I coached last season and I had a, a mom at the end of the season, at the end of the year picnic, come up to me and one of the coaches and, and start crying and mm -hmm. talk about how her son had gone from being this homebody who would not go out of the house. Like he had to be coaxed out of the house all the yeah. time to having this excitement about going out, you know, and, and that we just had such a good time with that team and, and the satisfaction that kids get from learning something. Um, whether it's the kid who like progresses from just to be able to catch a ball with a mitt to, you know, in Harlem, like we're at a disadvantage and I want them to have every opportunity to develop, to be able to play at a higher level, whether it's high school, college or whatever. And they're missing out on that opportunity as well yeah. for the higher performing kids. And so there's just been, I, I feel really, yeah, I feel really sad about it. And, um, and I, I haven't gotten to a, a way of accepting that partly because there's so much uncertainty still, uh, like, I don't, we could lose two seasons. Like we just sure. don't know. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's really, um, something that shows up for me. So, yeah, I appreciate so, you. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing it. And I think I know exactly what you mean. Um, you know, it's it's almost kind of like hard to admit, like oh, I'm I'm missing out, I'm 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 feeling sad about missing out on this extra fun thing, mm -hmm. you know. But that mm -hmm. this thing that my family really gets meaning out of, and I think there's many many people with their particular thing that they did in community with others, right? Whether it's arts or music or uh, you know dance, sports, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, you know, think about all of the summer youth employment jobs that are gone, mm. right? All of the, Brutal. that one hurts. All of the kids who were really had plans for this summer, right? This was the summer, you know, like, um, 
it's hard. There's a, there is a lot of loss there. And I think making space for that, it, I think in, it at least starts with like admitting that there's feelings there. Right. Mm-hmm. But then also, um, I, I feel like part of the, and I'm not, you know, I'm not in, by any stretch certified to advise people on their grief. Right. I'm not a therapist. I'm not any kind of licensed anything. Um, but I think like telling people that like, no, you're not crazy to feel that way. Mm. That is, there is loss there. And mm-hmm. if you doubt if there's loss in something like that, I actually think looking to children and their emotional kind of register for something like that, the kind of disappointment that our students have mm-hmm. around these kinds of things in, is in some ways a model of a human reaction that is unfiltered by, oh, well, that's a silly thing to be bothered by, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not that, you know, not that we need to break into tears daily about our hobbies, but, like, we need to make space for grief. Um, I think for me... Yeah, I, I just... Could, can I just share a quick yeah, yeah. Uh, story, too? I told you this yesterday, that um, two nights ago, my older son, who... They both love baseball, but he's like really loves it. And and not only has he that's been hard for him to deal with, but also um, on Friday night we found out that a parent in his school of a child of a student who he doesn't know, but it's still in the school community, died. And we wanted to share that with him because we wanted to make sure that he heard about it uh, from us and and not from another kid in his class who he's texting with mm-hmm. or something. Um, and so we shared it with him on Saturday morning and then Saturday night, he came into our room and started talking to my wife and, and just started crying. It was like, I don't know why I'm crying. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, you know, and, and she was great with him, but it was one of those things where he, he was clearly grieving mm-hmm. and he was grieving. You talk about the cues from the kids, right? Like it just yeah. poured out of him. It's not an everyday thing for him to do something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but it may have been for his classmate and, and school community. It may have been about baseball. It may have been about all of these things. Yeah. yeah. So thank you for sharing that story. Yeah. Um, that's so powerful, you know, to, to, to see how in that moment you can, validate somebody's emotional response and set a course for them. Right. Like this is normal to talk about that. I'm bummed about this. And like, that doesn't mean I'm going to cry every day, but I'm bummed right now. Right. Um, and it, you know, bummed is a kind of dismissive way of saying it, but yeah, that, that's a powerful story. Thank you. Um, I wanted to share that I was actually, uh, yesterday, today, today, this morning. Um, I try to make space for grief regularly. I think, I really Mm. think that, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of life comes down to practicing these values as we've talked about. Um, and, and this value of making space for grief really comes out of a feeling that, um, there's a lot of loss in, in my own story, in my community. And it's all loss that goes ungrieved. We just keep shuffling on. Mm. Um, you know, I, I talk a lot about my grandfather who passed me my last name. Um, and, and how, when he was a kid, he witnessed his father bleed out um, mm. in a after a gunfight in in wow. the in the East Texas town that they were running horses in, um, and how that story marked him and marked me two generations later because he told it to me and it left its mark. Yeah. Um, 
And so I think like understanding loss and its impact on you is an incredibly important part of a kind of self-reflective practice. Um, just this morning, I give you a simple example. Just this morning, I was sitting outside and, and reviewing some, you know, communications, emails. Um, and I was on Twitter, as I often am. Mm-hmm. Um, and somehow, someone, you know, someone had tweeted, saying, you know, you go down a rabbit hole on the Internet. Um, sure. and, I, and I got to Greta Thunberg's, you know, profile mm. mm-hmm. on Twitter. And Greta Thunberg's profile on Twitter says, I forget what exactly it says. It says, like, climate mm. activists. Also, yeah. I have Asperger's. And I was, like, stunned. I was like, whoa. Right. And Greta Thunberg, tell people who she is. Yeah, Greta Thunberg is famous for basically ditching school as a climate activist and doing it in such a way that she built a whole following of people and ended up going to the UN. It was this huge story. She sailed a, a yeah. boat uh, across the Atlantic by herself. And yep. she's, what, 14, 15? She's like a kid. She's like a, you know, young. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, sailed, did a solo sail trip and went to the UN to talk about climate change and its importance. Right. right? And then got vilified by the right. Sure. And, and you know, whatever. I don't. <laughs> yeah. Yes. No, but I mean, I, uh, but, yeah, that's a part of the just, story. In terms well, of yeah. her courage. Her courage yeah. yeah. Right? And, and yeah. it's just, you know, fearless, uh, in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and admired by many for, for that fearlessness. I was reading on Twitter and I noticed, you know, that, that this young lady, you know, put out on Twitter that she has Asperger's, this thing that we, right. you know, mental health is in, in the States at least is so, is so loaded with, mm-hmm. with these um, negative um, connotations. Um, and, you know, people, we talk about this a ton in schools that like people show up to schools with all sorts of stuff. And when you provide supports, people can do amazing things, right? Like, like it, you know, the, and I'm sure there's others who could speak to this much better than me, but, um, you know, to see, here's this person who's doing all this stuff. And I just realized this is an example of someone who has this condition. Yeah. Um, and then that thought triggered um, a thought that I have frequently, which is how many of our kids don't get that chance? Mm. How many of our kids have some kind of mitigating thing? on their jacket, on their, on their file. Um, and they never get the chance to go on a sailing ship or go to the UN or anything like that. Um, and why we have that stigma is because we stigmatize it. We avoid people who are different than us. And, and so, so like, like in, in sitting and reflecting on this, like realization about this person who I thought I knew something about, um, I realized how blind I am right, to the people I'm surrounded by. And making space for grief really looked like sitting with that ignorance in myself and and weeping. And I know it sounds strange. It sounds extreme. And I didn't sit there for an hour. You know, it was a brief, you know, it was a 30-second moment. But mm. I felt it, and I felt myself stop and say, I'm going to make space to let myself feel that because really I know that it's not that thing that that is it that's just a trigger but there's all sorts of other stuff in my head that I have yeah. as a backlog of grief and then yeah. I see this one thing and I have this weird thought yeah. on Twitter and it makes me feel vulnerable yeah. and the typical behavior is to clamp down right but when you make space for it I think you can I I just think it's better I just feel better when I make space so, for it I mean, that's 
I, I, that's very real. And but part of what I take from that story is that you don't even know exactly what you were grieving. Exactly. But the, the yeah. but you know you were grieving something. Yeah. 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 I'm and, not and that passionate about climate change or young yeah, people yeah, that I would just yeah. burst into tears. No, there's other stuff going yeah. on. Yeah. And the and a lot of it for me, I think right now is this death toll, like right. the scale of death. Because I'm a data person, and I at some point in my wanderings. Yeah realized how big of a scale this yeah. really is yeah it it just you know it sits with me you know and i yeah. know what death does to to communities and families yeah i remember when when my wife's dad died um someone at the funeral said to me he said you have to know that you're going to come home some days and she's just going to be crying like and and, yeah. and that's kind of how it was yep. and um for a while and yeah. that those tears that you experienced or that my son experienced the other night, it, it's, it's part of that. It just, it, it comes in these waves and, and we do need to make space for it. And that has to be part of our new normal. And I think that when we go back to work, we're going, there are going to be so many tears uh, from the children and from the adults. And we're already seeing conversations about preparing for the mental health needs of children and, and that is real, but part of preparing for the mental health needs of children is attending to our own mental health needs as right. well. Yes, so absolutely. I'm really, I'm really excited about this. There's so much more to discuss on this topic and we're not gonna hit it all today. We're gonna stop here. Uh, we're gonna come back to it. Uh, to Keep, us topic track, of grief. Keep us on yep. track, Keep us on track. And we're gonna come back to how it's impacting all of us and why we should all care about it. And we're gonna do it with some uh, some guests and some readings, and it's going to be good. So for now, we're going to end by being good bureaucrats. The views expressed here are personal opinions and do not reflect the official or unofficial position of any government agency, policy, party, leader, or really anyone besides the two of us, and maybe you, but maybe not. This content has not been sponsored or approved by anyone and was mostly just made because we wanted an opportunity to talk about things that matter to everyone, whether they realize it or not. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe out there.